we reach the second to last verses in the series on biblical allegories. This is number 11, uh, number 12 next week, and then uh, I'll take a break for a few weeks and then we'll start a different series. Um, tonight we're talking about God's glorious light. Uh, it's a, uh, a subject that I enjoy because when I think of God, I think of light. I think of him as light. He's just a pure light. Uh, and he's glorious. Um, he describes, or, or his light is seen for the first time in Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was form, without form and void. So there was nothing there, really, just a formless, empty mass. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. The meaning of that word moved is hovered. Uh, hovered with a sort of vibrating intensity. The energy of God was there. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. Just imagine what it was like to be there on the first day of creation. And on each subsequent day, especially the fourth day and the sixth day, and then on the fateful day when Adam and Eve sinned. Some of the most extraordinary events, and yet they covered very briefly in Scripture. In the beginning of creation, God spoke light into the darkness even before creating the sun, moon, and stars, sources of earthly light. On the sixth day, he created Adam and Eve, specifically to reflect his own unique light that shone brighter than any star. They were the pinnacle of his creation, to reflect his light. Uh, God's light is an allegorical picture of himself. It's brilliant. His light is brilliant in purity and power and glorious in opposition to both natural darkness and spiritual darkness which must always flee at the mere hint of his presence. You strike a match or turn on a little flashlight, the smallest little light in a very dark room, and immediately the darkness flees. Uh, you try and bring a bit of darkness into a lighted place, and don't even notice it. It's a, a small little spark of darkness. But the opposite is true when light enters darkness. And darkness is an allegorical picture of sin. In the absence of God and his light, Satan, the parent of sin, is described as the ruler of the darkness of this world in Ephesians 6.12. That darkness entered when the first two humans who were the crowning glory of God's creation, made in his image, chose to disobey him. Had they not taken the forbidden fruit, but ate instead of the tree of life, they and their descendants, us, would have reflected God's glorious light forever. But they disobeyed. All they knew, all everything they knew up to that moment was sunlight and starlight and moonlight and God's light. And they didn't appreciate what they had. They couldn't appreciate it because it was all they had, it was all they knew. And they didn't understand that God's light was something very different from the created sources. 
life. But when darkness entered again, in an instant, they disobeyed. It brought something new into the world. On the first day of creation, there was merely the absence of light. Now, there was the absence of the light bringer. And the darkness was not around them, but in them. What a change. What an incredible change in creation and in their circumstances. Such a good place to stop and pray and ask God's blessing on us, the message as we go forward. Father, we thank you so much that you are the God of life. You are light. You're all-powerful and wonderful. And it's just an extraordinary thought that your light dwells in each one of your children, us. And as we gather here tonight, we share that light. We thank you, Lord, for the wonder of it. May we appreciate it even more this evening. Speak to our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture refers to the darkness when God withdraws his light from the presence of sin as pitch darkness. It's, it's, it is darkness that he wears like a cloak as a barrier between him and sin. In Exodus 20, 21, when God prepares to reveal his law, we learn that the people stood afar off and Moses drew near to the pitch darkness where God was. Now, let me explain that what they, that pitch darkness doesn't mean that God is darkness. It means that as sinners, God is dark to us. Before you are saved, before you have an appreciation of God, He is in darkness to you. You, you don't know Him. Uh, he's hidden to you. And that's exactly what the Bible says. Psalm 18 and verse 11 declares, He made darkness His secret place. From our perspective, He hides behind the darkness. This was the legacy of Adam and Eve's sin. Instead of appearing as light, God now appeared as darkness to them and their descendants. It seemed his purpose had been defeated. That glorious purpose that was unveiled during the whole process of creation. But we know from the Gospels that that appearance of defeat uh, was not the end of the story. The Creator's wisdom foresight and power had something much greater in mind. He would renew the light and banish the darkness forever in a spectacular way that only God could conceive. No human imagination could ever think of anything like it. When God first brought the light, it was a physical manifestation that he spoke into existence. But now, out of the spiritual darkness and chaos that resulted from the fall of man, God would bring forth the glorious light of his own presence and power in us and through us. What a difference. What an incredible, glorious difference to that which Adam and Eve had experienced. The object of God's apparent greatest impartation would be a vessel to fully display God's glory, made greater still by its appearance out of such dark clay. The fact that we, gathered here tonight, each one of us, sinners by nature, 
lost in darkness, the fact that we mere mortals can reflect and, and show the glory of God in us, through us, that when we meet unsaved people, if we are walking with God, they can they sense something about us that is different. It's the light of God in us. The fact that it's in us to me is just astonishing, but it's true. He's deposited that light in each one of us to hear his story. God's light in us, working a transformation like the first day of creation, begins whenever a lost soul turns to God and receives salvation. It's an extraordinary event, described in brief outline by the Apostle Paul in one of my many favorite passages of Scripture. Uh, this is one of my maybe top two or three, because if you meditate on 2 Corinthians 4, 67, what it says is kind of freezes your mind when you think about it too much. God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts. And I've drawn your attention to this before, that what happened on the first day of creation, when he spoke light into the darkness, is exactly the same thing, according to the scripture, that happens when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. Has, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then the contrast, but we have this treasure in these earthen vessels, these vessels of clay, these sinful vessels. We carry that treasure in us, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Wow. You could stop right there and have a revival. It's the most astonishing thought. If you if you just would take an hour, go into a quiet place, and meditate on that passage, uh, you would find a tremendous blessing in it. The opening to the Gospel of John introduces this amazing plan by declaring, in him was light, and the light was the light of men, and the light shineth in darkness. Then that was the true light. This is John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 and 9 and 12. That was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. As many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. That light became our light. And the gospel later shares this prayer of Jesus about this in John 17, verses 21 to 22. He prays about us that they all may be one as thou father art in me and i in thee that they may also be one in us stop there and think when he says that what is he saying what is life he's what is god he's discovered he is this intense pure light and he's jesus is praying that they may also be one in us sharing that light, experiencing that light, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. Hallelujah. It's, it's just incredible. It's wonderful. It's so good to be a Christian. We are inheritors of this. We have this book that tells us this stuff, and it's true. It's not a fairy tale. Somebody didn't just one day wake up and write this down and make it up. It's absolutely true. If Jesus Christ is your Savior, you've experienced it. Right. Hopefully you saw you. Hopefully
on the day of your salvation. Adam could not have imagined the unfolding revelation of God's purpose when he was banished from Eden. He had known the light and didn't appreciate the light. And again, I don't blame Adam. He didn't know any better. He didn't know anything else. But when darkness became his companion, he longed for the light and didn't know where or how to find it. God had to bring it to him again. But that only happened when Jesus went down to Hades after his resurrection and spoke to the captains there. Adam was amongst them. He said, I'm the one you've been waiting for. And he took them off to heaven with him. That was the first time they saw his light. Adam could not have understood that I am a descendant born into this spirit, into his spiritual darkness, would have become beneficiaries of his fall. How did we benefit from his fall? Well, we received a book that teaches us about God and the magnificent story of his redemption plan, drawing us to his light, and it's such a brilliant contrast to our experience of darkness. Every one of us born into this world, is, our first experience is of darkness. And it's only when at some point in your life you encounter Jesus Christ and receive him into your life that you experience for the first time his light. Right. That pure, transforming light that you experience forever and you share it with everybody else who's had the same experience. The Old Testament begins the story by introducing God's creation life and recording the vast consequences of Adam's sin. The whole Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, is a repeating story of the failure of the human race, given to us in many different allegories, parables, historical events, again and again driving home the point, we are wrecked by sin, and we desperately need a savior. That's the Old Testament story. It's one of darkness. The New Testament adds the possibility of light location within us through redemption in Christ. And before we get to the end of the New Testament, we see the complete picture revealing God's intention to banish darkness forever, unveiling himself in and through a spiritual body of Christ redeemed individuals, each bearing his light, and then uniting and multiplying his unrestrained glory. We'll see that in a moment in Scripture. That's his purpose. That's his plan. That each of us bear the light, and then we come together, and we, we unite together, and the intensity of the light grows to the place that his glory is seen. I've often mentioned it here. I long for the day when this body comes together in such unity that the glory appears here and changes the world around us. No reason it shouldn't happen. It's got to happen somewhere. May as well start here. So let's look at Scripture's methodical development of the story of emerging light. We, we begin with glory in the Old Testament tabernacle and temple. Now the tabernacle was that portable tent in the wilderness, the place where they would meet God. In Exodus 25, verses 1 through 8, we see instructions for construction of the first tabernacle after his death from Egypt. 
and in 25 verse 8 we read, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell amongst them. Did you notice the difference between that and the New Testament? I'm going to dwell amongst them. When you get to the New Testament, it talks about dwelling in them, in us. But at least in the Old Testament, he came to dwell amongst them. And in Exodus 14, verses 1 to 33, we see instructions for assembling the tabernacle. And then in verse 34, of, we record, we see a record of what happened when the tabernacle was ready. Then a cloud covered the tent of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. was an amazing event after what had happened in Eden. And that long history, the thousands of years that passed from Eden to this moment, God has been methodically working to bring mankind to this point where he could do this, revealing his glory in the midst of his people. Leviticus chapter 9 verses 23 to 24 speak of the sacrifices being made ready in the tabernacle and then God's power entered first his glory then his power there came a fire out from before the Lord and consumed upon the altar the burnt offering and the fat which when all the people saw they shouted and fell on their faces probably the only uh, sane response if the glory of the Lord suddenly appears in the midst and the fire falls from heaven in 1 Kings 8, verses 10 to 11, we move from the tabernacle in the wilderness to Solomon's great temple in Jerusalem, which replaced the tabernacle. And when it was finished, just as it happened in the tabernacle, God entered. We read in uh, that passage, And it came to pass when the priests would come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. And if you know your Bible, you know this is all building up to the glory of the Lord filling this house, this body. Second Chronicles 7, verse 1 to 2. When the sacrifices were made ready in the temple, God's power entered. The fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the house, and the priest could not enter into the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. Hallelujah. Yes. Power and glory in his house. Well, then we come to the New Testament temple. Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 3. Here the prophet speaks of Christ. But in the New Testament context, his words could equally apply to the body of Christ. wonderful passage of scripture. Arise, shine, for thy light is come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon thee. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and gross darkness the people. But the Lord shall arise upon thee, and his glory shall be seen upon thee, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and kings to the brightness of thy rising. That applies to Jesus Christ. But I want to remind you, we are the body of Christ today. And that could equally apply to us. Isaiah 66, verses 1 and 2. 
expand on the thought of God seeking a new kind of temple when he proclaims, Thus saith the Lord, the heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is thy house that you build unto me? That's a reasonable question. I don't need a house to live in. Where is the place of my rest? I don't need one. It's a rhetorical question. For all these things hath my hand made, and all these things have been, saith the Lord. But to this man, this woman will I look, even to him that is poor and of contrite spirit, and tremble at my word. When we fear God, when we submit to God, when we receive God into our lives, when our lives are transformed by Him, when we come together like this, we make ourselves eligible for a visitation from God. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, Paul confirms that God now resides in a temple not made with hands. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? What a thought. If you look at the whole Old Testament history, you realize for so many millennia, this was unfolding in physical manifestations in the tabernacle and in the temple. And the awe that God's people in those days viewed this with. And now he starts talking about us experiencing that for ourselves. This, we are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. 2 Corinthians 6.16 says, Ye are the temple of the living God. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's talking about you and me. Can you believe that? It's hard to believe. And that's why it's so easy to be casual about it. To come to church without a sense of anticipation, a sense of awe. As mentioned before, if, if we could just all on one amazing day arrive at those doors and come in here with an expectation, with a hunger, with a sense of excitement, today I want to pour my heart out in worship to God with my brothers and sisters. I've left all my problems at home, all my burdens behind. I've come here for one reason. I want to exalt the God who saved me. On that day, his glory will be seen in our midst. As God hath said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. That is an absolute statement from God, our Creator. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, Paul prays for us to understand God's purpose for us, God's presence with us, God's power and glory manifested in us and through us. He calls for us to grasp the immensity of our inheritance in Christ in that one passage. And he prays that the eyes of your understanding should be enlightened, that ye may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us who believe. an amazing statement in Ephesians. And then we discover as we walk with God and read this wonderful book 
that this glory isn't a transitory thing. It's not something that comes and goes. It's a glory that is forever. So to summarize the introduction to this message, we've seen that God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined his eternal glory in our hearts by our relationship with Jesus Christ. And out of the darkness and chaos that resulted from the fall of man comes the glorious light of God's own presence and power in us and through us as we make our way to our present, this present evil world. And when we come to the end of our journey here, we enter a heavenly glory that is forever. Let me just stress here, if what I'm saying to you sounds weird or nonsense or yeah, whatever, you have no idea what you're missing out on. Right. These are statements by God. If you believe in God, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you know your faith, these statements apply to you and to us as a collective body. Mm -hmm. They're not fairy tales. This is real life if we would but live it. Right. And when we come to the end of our journey here, having experienced even a bit of it, we enter a heavenly glory that is forever. Our heavenly Jerusalem has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, because the glory of God lights it up and its lamp is the Lamb. Revelation 21 and verse 22. In Revelation 22 verses 2 to 5 we read this. The throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be in their foreheads and there shall be no night there and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. That would be the full realization of that light. But we already have it in us. We should already know at least a taste of what it's like. We should already have that excitement in us to experience the whole thing in all its fullness. Knowing all this, the question is, what will we do with it? At the very least, we should walk daily as children of light. That's what he asks us to do. God's glorious light is our inheritance and our destiny. Jesus urged his followers to believe in the light and to walk as children of light. That's the statement in John 12, 36. That's what he says. Believe in the light and walk as children of light. The Apostle Paul repeated the admonition to both the Ephesians and the Thessalonians. In Ephesians 5.8, Ye were sometimes darkness, but now ye are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And to the Thessalonians he said, You are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. It's a great tragedy. An immense tragedy if the glory in us fails and it can that that pure light that we contain as children of God begins to fade when we become casual in our approach to sin when we let it back in many of us 
and many of our churches seem to fade away from the initial brightness of that divine spark that shone in them at their new birth and the light in them becomes indistinguishable from darkness. They become dull, muted, lackluster, barely conscious of what is happening to them. Let that never be said of us. Uh, I think we have a unique selection of people here, hungry people, people who've been drawn here because they want something more in their walk with God. Beware the example of Eli, even though we've been drawn here looking for something more. We can lose it so easily if we become casual about it. And poor old Eli, the backslidden priest in the house of the Lord, fell backwards and died, and his evil sons died, and the mother of his grandson, grandson died as she was giving birth, and she named the child Ichabod, saying, the glory which departed from Israel. What a tragic statement that was. 1 Samuel 4.21 may, may it never be said of New Grass Baptist Church that the, the glory is departing from us little by little. From each of us individually. That's how it would have to happen. We don't suddenly just leave the church. We are the church. When it starts to depart from us, when we just become, hey, whatever, uh, it could depart. But it happens so gradually that you hardly notice the darkness encroaching on your spiritual life. May it never be said that we share the state of Samson, in whose life the power and glory of God was so evident, yet he was a carnal man and he wasn't careful about the things of God. He woke up one day, not knowing that the Spirit of God had left him, the presence of God had left him. And soon he found himself blind and chained to a mill, going in circles, getting nowhere. May it never be said of our church, if it was said of the church of Laodicea, that though we are seemingly rich and increased with goods and in need of nothing, Jesus has been driven out and stands knocking at the door, asking to come back in again. Revelation chapter 2, verses 14 to 20. There is no sorrow. You know, once you grasp it, it's hard to get it back again. There is no sorrow so deep as that of Peter, who wept bitterly after his betrayal of Jesus. And one of the Gospels noticed that he went out into the night, into the darkness. There is no blindness so intense as that of Samson. And there is no church so empty as a church without Jesus. And they're all around us. It must have been the day when they started out like the church here. And today they are empty, dead shells. A mockery of what God intended for them. Let the beauty of Jesus be seen in us. We are the temple of the living God. We are the children of light. So let us walk even as Jesus walked. We must continue to shine. The world needs light. The world needs light. If it doesn't flow from us, if it doesn't flow from us, the world has no light 
no light and no hope. Where else are they going to learn of it? Where else do they have a chance of seeing it if they don't see it in us, from us? If the glory in your life has grown, don't get it back. Don't settle for dimness. Don't be satisfied with barrenness. The glory of God reflected in us is not natural. It doesn't come from us and not from anything in this present evil world. God's glory cannot be made. It cannot be purchased. It must be given by God. Amen. If it fades in us because of unrepented sin, it must be renewed by God only as we turn back to Him. Right. To avoid darkness, we've got to continue walking with Him in His light. Hungrily seeking the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. That glory begins with him and continues in us that he planned. May that ever be true of this church. Father, we make that our prayer.